Give me a sick or dying patient any day. It might be challenging, but I have knowledge and I have resources and I can make a plan. But please don't ask me about your new Cocker Spaniel Doodles, raw, gluten-free, all-natural diet with added turmeric and blueberries, and should I feed it grain, and what about a bit of yogurt? It's not that I don't care. It's just that I feel very lost in the midst of the total information overload and aggressive marketing campaigns out there. If you feel the same, then this episode is for you. Our guest is Shiva Grinalch. Shiva is a registered animal nutritionist who specializes in companion animal nutrition in both commercial production as well as clinical and therapeutic nutrition for individual pets. She holds both a Master's of Animal Science and a PhD in Animal Nutrition, and her career journey has included roles as a wildlife carer and a vet nurse. She currently works as a product development manager for a commercial pet food company as well as in Sydney Animal Nutrition, her own nutrition consulting service for owners, vets, and commercial businesses on all aspects of clinical and general nutrition, product development, regulatory affairs, formulation, education, and media. Basically, Shiva dives deep into the facts on the topics that many of us try to avoid for a living, and she's sharing some of those facts with us to help us make informed decisions for our patients and have those conversations with our clients that can be, let's just say, a little bit strained. Join us as we pick apart the trends and the myths around companion animal nutrition so you don't have to just zone out the next time a client starts a sentence with, my breeder says that this breed has very special dietary requirements. We'll be catching up with Shiva next week and to put a timestamp on this, we're releasing this around the 20th of October 2022 in Sydney at the Vet Expo where we'll be doing some live podcasting and Shiva will be hosting a talk. You've heard us talk about it in the last few episodes, but now it's imminent. Our bags are packed. I have a special suitcase for my recording equipment. We have our tickets for the boat cruise on Sydney Harbour and we're looking forward to seeing you there. In fact, we have a challenge for you. Come and find us next to the coffee shop on the expo floor and bring some questions for us. We want you to be the podcaster and we'll be the guests. Ask me and G any questions you want. We'll broadcast it live and then we'll turn it into an official episode. Unless it's really embarrassing. So that is 26 and 27 October 2022 in Sydney at the ICC, where the Vet Expo will be bringing the veterinary animal health and pet care worlds together with over 100 major vet and pet product suppliers, as well as some of the most innovative startup companies. The link to book your ticket is in the show description, wherever you're listening to this. And remember to use our unique code VETVALT70, all caps, 70, when you check out to get a 70% discount of standard pricing. That means your tickets for the two days will be 90 bucks or $105 if you want to join us on the boat cruise, which you should. Okay, back to nutrition and Shiva Grinalch. Shiva, welcome to the Vetfeld Podcast. Lovely to speak to you. Thank you for having me. I've been wanting to talk nutrition for ages. It's one of those things that you kind of learn about it as a vet, but also not. It's like, yeah, there's important stuff there, but don't worry about that. Let's look at all the drugs. Um, <laughs> there's a bag of food, feed that, and problem solved. <laughs> Which at the start, I have to I have to declare my bias. That is how I was educated. I mean, it was, it was literally 20 odd years ago. That's how I fed dogs when I was a kid. It's kind of how my dogs eat. Good quality food. We've done all the work for you. It's balanced. Feed that. So that's where I mentally am kind of stuck. And I think a lot of it are, are of that mindset of let's keep it simple. There's something 
And I, to be honest, for myself, I wish they could make a food that they that they went. This is really bad. Let's just eat that every day. You'll be fine. <laughs> yes, I know. Just keep it simple. <laughs> but times are changing, uh, especially for our clients. They're googling, they're asking questions. They come up with some ideas. I was going to say random ideas, but maybe there's some merit in them. And that's kind of what we want to dig into. What's your bias? Declare your bias. <laughs> I actually, quite honestly, I don't have a bias and I go very much out of my way to ensure that I don't because I can see the pros and cons for everything and it is very much a case-by-case situation. And that said, for some reason, I do get a lot of inquiries from people because I'm not a vet. They think, they seem to project their views that I have the same view. So whether it's raw, cooked, predominantly those two or vegan, vegetarian, that I am the person that just does alternate, which is absolutely not true at all. There will be times where I will say that the alternate diet that they're wanting to do is absolutely not suitable for their pet, given their condition. So very much look at it case by case. I like to respect the values of the pet owner and what they're wanting to do and seeing how we can work with that. So I'm quite mindful of that, but I guess a lot of my role is to educate and really weigh up the pros and cons of what they're wanting to do. So I try to be the voice of reason. That's what we need, the voice of reason. Because <laughs> I, I do think there's a perception, and maybe justified, that clients almost have a lack of trust in us as vets when it comes to nutrition. Because, hey, like I just said, we don't learn a hell of a lot about it. And then there's that perception that B, we're in the pocket of the food companies because once at uni they gave us a sausage roll and bought me a beer and now now I'm going to have lifetime loyalty to them <laughs> because of that. Either they ask us and a lot of us go, well, I don't really want to engage in this topic. Go, go talk to a nutritionist, which is you, right? That's where we, where we send them. Yes, and I do spend a lot of time, I would say half of the consults end up actually trying to break those myths with vets get money from uh, those big multinationals and I have to also disclose to them that I actually do work in the commercial side of it too and these are how things are actually manufactured and so I do need to go through all of that and they do actually come to realise and go, oh, okay, thanks for disclosing it. But yeah, there is a lot of scepticism about how pet food is made and I think the narrative the historical narrative has somehow just still made its way to the modern pet owner. Perhaps, yes, in the 80s or so earlier, they probably weren't not weren't making it as good as they should. But these days, they put a lot of research and development. It's really important for manufacturers to do right by pet owners to create good foods. It's not in their interest to create a bad food. That said, errors can occur in manufacture. And animals can get sick, but by no means is anything deliberate. And pet owners, they should be given the information and they can make that decision themselves. But I really would like to break that narrative of that vets get money, certain people get money, and that manufacturers are out there to kill your pets. And the biggest one, which it kind of infuriates me, is this filler. I hate filler. Like I hate the term filler so much. And I go, well, what does filler actually, what's your understanding of filler? This kind of silence. And I go, the only thing I can think of with filler is in poultry feed, even with birds, at times you need to add sand. 
But even then, that kind of has a functional role for the bird. But every ingredient that is put in, let's say for a commercial food, it's functional. It has a role. And if I look at grains, for instance, grains have a whole host of micronutrients that the body needs. It gives the animal energy rather than needing to use protein as a source of energy. Protein's not there to be energy. It's got its own roles. So these are the kind of things I like to go through, particularly with pet owners. And, yeah, I think they appreciate that kind of rationale. The other one I do get questions about is just like uh, allergies, for instance. That's another one that pains me to discuss. So there's a lot of projection. There are a lot of neurotic pet owners out there and they like to project uh-huh. we know. <laughs> their, <laughs> their issues onto their pet. And so, yeah, a lot of time is spent trying to actually problem solve and go, actually, I don't think this is really the case. Your dog may not have an allergy because that's quite an extreme term to use, but perhaps sensitivities is a better way to look at it. Yeah, we hear it all. <laughs> so so just to clarify, how do people end up with you? What prompts people to Google animal nutritionists? Do they have a, is it allergy related or is it just, oh, I don't want to feed commercial food? So most of the issues that I deal with, over 80% of the clients that I deal with, it is a condition. And the biggest condition is kidney disease. So with their pets, they go to the vets and the vets say, you need to go on a kidney-friendly or therapeutic food. And a lot of them are quite against it. They go, well, I can't have my dog eat this for the rest of its life. What kind of life is that? So then they come to me in hope that there's other kinds of foods or other textures and tastes that I could formulate for them that will be kidney-friendly. And at times, I mean, depending on the stage of the kidney disease, we can do that. And then other times I go, it's not really worth it. It's actually safer for your pet to be on the therapeutic food because there's just too much monitoring that you need to do. And, yes, the food is bland. The food will be bland even as a home cook. There's only so much that you can do with the food and only so many ingredients that you can use as well. But I guess people come to me at a point of desperation where they're not happy with the first opinion and the first way of treating their pet. So they come to me, I guess, to validate what they've been thinking or to confirm that what their vet is saying is actually correct or not correct. So, yeah. Okay. That's really interesting. You mentioned a couple of myths. What are the most common myths out there, either from clients that they misunderstand? So we mentioned that the pet food companies are evil and are out to kill their pets and put feathers and sand in their food. So that one, we, we know that's not a fact. But, are there, but even from vets, are there things that we believe that you come across that's, that's inaccurate? I'd actually say vets have actually been good, and I think these days most vets, they actually do tell their clients, they go, I don't know. There are things I just don't know. And it would be good for you to find a nutritionist to help you, you know, confirm your thinking on things. They go, this is all I know, and I can only give you a plan based on what I know. Anything further than that, you need to ask someone else. So I can't actually say vets have made things anything worse. I think the internet has made things worse. I think Facebook 
has made things really <laughs> bad. Uh, a lot of these groups and a lot of these startups as well. These little startups of pet food, particularly in the fresh food space. I think it's great. Look, I have nothing against fresh food, but what I don't like is having your marketing is predominantly based on trashing other foods where I know a lot of research and development has gone into that and that can, and those foods can be really beneficial for some animals and people will look at that and you create so much confusion. So I don't think that that is a good thing to do for pets and pet owners. I think it's a very irresponsible way of marketing and I think it's a very desperate way of marketing if I'm to be quite honest. So whether it's fresh and raw, raw is a really prominent one and unfortunately due to marketing and certain books, apparently raw food can cure anything. With turmeric. You have to add turmeric to it. Yeah, <laughs> or giving a bone. So there are things that just do infuriate me and I think do make things really bad and I just wish that people really do look at the credentials of these startups. And, you know, some of them might get ambassadors of a vet. But to be quite honest, the vets that they use, a vet unless they're specialised in area, you're a general practitioner. And just like me, I'll never say I know about your pet's condition beyond from a nutritional point of view. I cannot analyse the blood results. I can't do anything like that. So I think some people kind of need to stick in their lane. But the, <laughs> there's, you, an you, <laughs> there's an understatement of the century. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a lot of the time, that's what I spend my time doing, having to explain well what you've seen on Facebook please ignore that a lot of it becomes just a an education kind of lesson and I'm still having to explain to people that no chickens do not have hormones in them they just don't and chickens a good thing to do and your dog does not actually have an allergy to chicken it might have a sensitivity or there's something else going on well it could certainly be allergic to the chicken but it's not the hormones in the chicken it's just the the protein, isn't it? It's just the protein, but there could be other factors mm. as well, and it could be a one-off. It's a, it's very multifactorial. It's nice for me to hear you say these things because I do sometimes wonder: Am I too narrow-minded? Am I? Are there, are there things that I've missed? And because I get bombarded, I, I feel sorry for clients actually because. According to my Facebook feed, I'm interested in animals, so guess what? I get all these ads for all these foods and raw and. And it infuriates me. And then every now and again, I do think, well, maybe there is something to it. Maybe I have been duped into thinking that a big brand commercial dog food is the, is perfectly fine to feed. So it's nice for me to hear you say that, that I'm not crazy. <laughs> well, yes. I'm not old-fashioned. Yeah. 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 But at least with the fresh food, I understand why people want to do it. And I tell people, let's kind of look at it. And I always promote a combination feeding approach. So if your dog's healthy or your cat's healthy, let's go, you know, for the sake of their mental health, because it does bring them joy when they have a bit of raw food or they have a bit of cooked food. That's fine. Like we can do that. But on the other hand, I want to ensure that they are getting their micronutrients and to some degree macronutrients, because a lot of those, say with the fresh food, a lot of them are actually quite poorly formulated where the energy densities are not high enough. It's not factoring in the fact that the animal will be exerting any energy. And I don't think that the micronutrients are quite there. Perhaps on a theoretical level, they're there. But if that were to get actually tested, it wouldn't be there. 
So over time, what that might do to an, to an animal is not going to be good. So that's why I like to do a combination approach. So in a way, it's like an insurance policy for the animal long term. Yeah. You mentioned raw earlier. And that's a, it's a question that we get asked. <laughs> I cheat because I'm an emergency vet. So when we, when we do the history, it's not normally, we're not talking about long-term health. And then they say, yeah, my animal, it, it's raw. Then a little part of me dies inside, but I can sort of brush over it and go, yes, okay. Well, <laughs> that's the GP vet's problem. He can talk to you about that or she can talk to you about that. Is it a problem? Is it is it not? Like, are there reasons why, let's say, client comes in and says to their vet, at the vaccination, yeah, after I started feeding raw, can you go, yeah, okay, that's okay, let's not talk about it or do we need to say something about it and, and help me to come up with the right things to say what's potentially bad about it? So I like when people say that, I really do try, I'm not wanting to be judgmental, I always like to find out what their rationale was for that. And so most of the time the rationale is because they want to feed their dog what is naturally appropriate but then it makes you think naturally appropriate, well, like a wolf. So a wolf has evolved. The way that they metabolize things are different, a dog with a wolf. A wolf didn't have access to yogurt. A wolf didn't have access to powdered kelp, didn't have access to eggs through the domestication of chickens. There's just so many things that it sounds so beautiful but if you actually think about it, it doesn't actually make any sense at all. A wolf didn't have that. So anyway, I like to find out what their rationale is. For some, it's because they think it will help their pet given their condition. And the worst one is actually when the pet has, say, kidney disease and um, it's on an exclusively raw diet. What that's going to do to the animal after a short period of time even is really quite detrimental to them. But there are some who are extremely adamant and you can only say and do so much. And I think a lot of it, without sounding too rude, I think it comes from a place of ignorance and just the marketing does really, really well. And um, it's also a projection of people wanting to live a healthy life. So if they're giving their animal what is perceived as a healthy, natural way of living, that person feels good about themselves too. And so that's internalised. So I think it's good first to find out what their rationale is. And the problem with raw foods, let's say aside from all the issues of potential pathogenic problems, because everyone these days feeds human-grade stuff. So in that view, apparently that reduces the amount of pathogens. But the other side of it is, is that you're feeding a diet that is so high in organ meats. You only need to give so much of an organ meat. It's not natural to have excessive amounts of organs being fed to your dog. And as I've said before, you don't want that much protein because one, protein doesn't stay. It gets excreted. And if there's too much protein as well, your animal gains weight. So it's just with raw, it's just so hard to balance it. And generally, yeah, there's just a lot of you have surplus of things or a deficiency in things. It's never quite easy to formulate accurately. And I think they think if you just add a bit of eggshell powder, which I think the bioavailability of that is really poor, long-term, again, what that will do to your animal is not going to be great. So just the digestibility of it and how much that animal is going to be taking in is not going to be as good. And the energy density of it is not going to be too great really either. 
the animal's just not going to be able to utilise it as well, in my opinion. But that said, there's still got to be quite a lot of research looking at the utilisation of foods, like whether it's raw, cooked, commercial. But I just think it's a fantasy and long-term what that will do to your pet is quite detrimental. And I think that's the reason why I got into nutrition because when I got my very first pet, which was a cat, the breeder told us to put a cat on a raw diet. And because of that, I absolutely knew nothing. I was 16 years old. I knew absolutely nothing. And my parents, they wouldn't have known any. They never had pets, you know. That's just not the norm. So we just listened to this person. And then over time what happened was feeding this raw diet, obviously my cat became very fussy, didn't want to eat anything commercial. We were just feeding him fish and chicken because that's that's what he liked, that's what he was used to. That eventually killed my cat because he's immune he didn't have a strong immune system his bones became so brittle because where was he getting his calcium from and through a simple kind of cat fight even though he got medications he died from that ultimately because his body just could not get through it because his diet was so poor so it was because of that situation I thought with the raw food I'm particularly passionate about because there's just so much uh, misconception and people don't realise long-term what that can do to your pet if you don't do it correctly. And so I get quite upset about it. It's not easy as throwing some chicken feet in there and a duck's head and a quail egg and, you know, these, these are quite fancy ingredients as well that actually were not accessible to wolves. If you think about it, it's a fantasy. What I'm hearing is that the facts that I have in my head or some of the facts around this is accurate. But the challenging thing sometimes is actually to have that conversation with the client who comes to you with with those preconceived ideas. I like, first of all, that you say you have to start by listening and understanding and kind of being curious about their motivation. Beyond that, have you figured out good ways of convincing people because you're right they, they come in almost like a with a religious fervor about this i was listening to a diff, completely different podcast this morning where the with simon sinek who said when you have a disagreement with somebody you don't always have to disagree with them at the time when you hear that they're wrong he says because often there'll be emotion involved and he says you have to answer emotion with emotion and rationality with rationality and sometimes you have to sit back a little bit and let let the emotion play out before you come. Because what we do as vets, what I do, because we're rational academic beings and somebody comes with a strong idea and I get on my high horse and I'm like, well, you, in my head, I'm like, you're an idiot. I know that's right. You should shut up and listen to me. And that works how many times? Never. Never. <laughs> and, that's, and that's exactly, absolutely right. And, and I recognize that. And so my approach, tone is everything. The way that I speak to you, the tone that I speak to you makes such a difference. And so it takes a lot of practice. And so I'd say with a lot of clients that I've had, and I've had people that are so fiercely, you know, they came in and they were so fierce about raw and I've managed to get them to go at least on a combination. And it all comes down to my tone of voice. You really need to practice that. You need to kind of, I guess as a male, really kind of get into your feminine side in a way and just sound like really like a nurturing mother that goes, hey, what's happened? Are you okay? It makes such a huge difference because they feel so attacked. 
owners say to me, I feel so judged and attacked. And the vet's not trying to do that. They're wanting to understand, but the way that they're going about it is the wrong way. And so, as I said, you start off where you go, what's your rationale? I want to understand why. You let them do that. You're getting their trust. And then they open up a little bit more to you. And then you just ask more questions about them and their pet. And then they're more inclined to listen to you. It is going to be a longer conversation. And I know vets don't have that time. You only have 15, 20 minutes, maybe max half an hour if they've booked in for longer. So you don't, whereas with my consults, they go up to an hour and sometimes I go more. So I do have that luxury of time with people. Yeah. Well, the, the answer is potentially is when you have those things is to have somebody in your practice. Might be a nurse who's passionate about nutrition or send them to a nutritionist, but to have the time to get that trust because you, it's exactly what you say. I, they come in with their story. I react internally and I don't want to attack them, but I do judge. If they say they feel judged internally, I am judged. Yeah. <laughs> and then if, when you judge and you speak, it comes out like that. It's exactly your tone will say, I'm superior, you're an idiot, and that's going to get you nowhere. So I, I actually, this might be the most important bit out of this nutrition podcast is to... Yeah, and, and showing that empathy. All vets have empathy. We wouldn't get into the field without having empathy, but I think it's just being making yourself a lot more mushier, and it goes a really long way, a really long way. Mm. Yeah, that's right. And you can say those, they talk about those empathetic, empathetic, I always mess this word up, empathy words, empathy terms. I understand and you feel like I, or I don't know if you've got better words, but yes, I agree. I also worry about my my dog and and its food. And relating yourself to their situation. Yeah. 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 Now with the, let's talk about the technicalities a bit again, with the commercial foods. And this I've seen, a, I've seen a discussion amongst vets about this, the word processed. Now in human nutrition, that's a, an ugly word. It's a swear word, processed, highly processed foods. And then the discussion about, well, a bag of dried kibble is clearly a highly processed food. Am, am I right in that assumption? It is a processed food of sorts, yeah? There is, but everything, everything is processed. Everything is processed. It's impossible for it not to be processed. And some things do need to be highly processed so then it is bioavailable to you. So it's one of those words, again, that's thrown around. To me, it's meaningless. It's kind of like filler. I think what's more important are the ingredients that are being used. And some ingredients need to go through a further process so it is in an acceptable way that our body can then utilise so, for instance, I guess I'm trying to think of, let's just go back to grains. People don't like grains, but they need to go through a process so then the body can or the animal can utilise its nutrients. And it's an amazing nutrient. Even, say, with oats or quinoa and things, they have to go through some process. Yes, there are some things that are minimally processed, but it only needs that minimal process for them to be able to be utilised well. But process is not a... It's not a bad thing. I think there are a lot of words and a lot of terms that will take a lot of time to kind of uh, undo with the stigma and that it will just take time and it will take a lot of education too. Yeah. Am I right in understanding that, that some of the fear about the process, or at least one thing I've heard with human nutrition is 
for example, heat treating some of those ingredients will change them chemically and then produce other chemicals that potentially are implicated in carcinogens. And is there anything in that in any kind of nutrition? So to get it to the kibble, it does need to go to a process. It does need a certain heat and moisture and all of that to get it to that. But the temperatures and the ingredients that are used, they're able to withstand it. So there is not too much denaturing. And there are concentrates that are added that are able to go through those temperatures. And a lot of the time, well, actually, I can't say a lot of the time, but with, I guess, well-regarded manufacturers, they do test their batches. They do ensure that it does have that protein that it's supposed to have. It does have that fat. Some of them do go further. They do further analysis where they'll look at the amino acid profile that, yes, it does actually have all these. Not as frequently. The larger ones will because you will have customers that will call and say, I would like the typical analysis, and they're entitled to that. Uh, You have like your guaranteed, which is just theoretical values of how much, you know, crude protein, crude fat um, it would have. But a typical analysis means that they've actually gone and done testing on a few of their batches and they've got averages. But a lot of the ingredients that are put in there, they can withstand those temperatures. And concentrates are added in there to ensure if there are losses, it's made up with those concentrates. So I understand that, yes, from a chemistry point of view, things can change. You know, the chemical structures can change and it can turn into this and this and that. But there isn't anything in the literature that states that kibble has there's there's no kind of correlation with commercial foods and cancer or commercial foods and other kind i think there's just greater reporting but you know with cancers and certain diseases that's environmental that's hereditary there are other factors food definitely can play a part but it's not as significant as people make it to be yeah but look it is a very valid question for sure, but there's just not enough in the literature to say, yes, it does do such bad things to the body. I suppose the, again, trying to see it from a, from a client and then from a pet owner perspective, there's so much emphasis in human health about eat less shit and eat healthy, fresh food, uh, steer clear of processed, because that's where the word comes from, is from our aspect. Don't eat Twinkies and chocolates and chips. I can't have the discussion if somebody says, well, why does my doctor tell me that? But you telling me that's fine. Just eat this bag of food. How do you answer that one? Well, look, it's completely up to them. I mean, the commercial foods are there because pet owners, they don't always have the time. I mean, if you think about it as well, if you think of with humans, a lot of people give their babies formula and we trust formula. You know, I give my children formula when they were babies. So, and there is a trust there. And we know that there's going to be nutrients there, but sometimes, you know, I've had to give formula because I am time poor and I've gone back to work and I can't breastfeed anymore. So you have a choice. If you don't like commercial food, don't do it. That's fine. You can do your cooked food. Just obviously you need to have someone guide you to do that correctly, but people have that right to do that. But either food, you know, you do what works for you and there shouldn't be that judgment. So I suppose the answer is, if you're going to not give commercial food, then just at least make sure you, you do your research and don't just do your research on Facebook or Google and feed a better, better a balanced commercial, highly processed meal 
than a shitty home-cooked meal. Yeah, a poor deficient or surplus in the wrong things kind of food because you can go quite wrong with that as well. Okay, cool. And then you said earlier, you said grain is an excellent nutrient. And then, of course, the counter-argument of dogs don't eat grain, but wolves don't eat grain. <laughs> Are they? Because you'll see it everywhere. They can't really process grain. They kind of, what's the, I don't want to say counter-argument, but what, what are the facts around it? Yes, so dogs have evolved where they can utilize carbohydrates and they need that as a source of energy. Even cats, to a degree, can use that as well. They need glucose. And so obviously you look at the ratios too. Yes, of course you don't. I mean, and also depending on conditions, actually it's better to have a higher carbohydrate diet and a moderate kind of protein diet depending on conditions. But dogs can absolutely utilize carbohydrates and there are different types of carbohydrates. Yes, you've got your grains and you've got your vegetables. So there are different carbohydrates that you can use. But they have evolved differently. So wolves are still quite primitive in the way that they metabolize things. But dogs, domestic dogs, have evolved where they can utilize. And the foods that we now offer them or that they can they get in their diet is a lot better than what a wolf would probably get. And people have to remember that the wolf, they have such, well, at least historically, they had such poor lives. Like, I don't know exactly what their life expectancy were, but it wasn't very long. There'd be disease they get eaten whereas dogs now can live these really long lives and that's just through evolution through genetics through diet so we have to think how far we've come with dogs and how they utilize nutrients it's quite different to wolves even if you look at big cats versus our domestic cats it's different it's completely different yeah so if somebody uses the word wolf, just say, your Frenchie is not a wolf. <laughs> it's a different. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Now, something that we actually had a discussion with one of our medicine people the other day is prebiotics and probiotics and things like that. Is that something that you work in or get asked about a lot or that you can speak I of? I do. Look, it is such a huge area and there are people who just dedicate their lives looking at that. My knowledge on it, look, it's not as good, but from what I do understand, so there is, there's a lot on the market out there and the efficacy of them, to be quite honest, I don't think there's really many out there that are too good. I think it might be more anecdotal and I know that a lot of them, you know, it's, it's very expensive to do trials. So a lot of them don't do trials on it. They just happen to have a lot of money that they can throw out there and create and launch these products. And the thing with the gut health as well, we all have an individual, we have individual kind of colonies. Our guts are so different. So a probiotic you might get on the shelf may not be quite suitable for your, for your gut colony. And it may do, yeah, really nothing. But there are some brand I know of where they've done quite extensive work on their product and they have done research and I think it's currently going through a patent. So, so there's definitely a lot of interest around it and I think it definitely has legs, but it just has a really long way to go. But there are some on the market I think, you know what, they're not, they seem to do pretty well and I do recommend it just to see how it goes for some pets. Specific conditions or just general health or are you using it when you pull it off the shelf, is it? So animals that, are, that seem to have, they're more prone to sensitivities or IBD issues, 
I'll say, you know, go on that. Or younger animals, for instance. And something that they may need to be on for life, like humans. Some humans are just on probiotics, prebiotics their whole life. And that's something that you do need to maintain for a long period, not just have a one-off tablet or chew here and there. It needs to be maintained. There needs to be continuity because our gut bacteria can change very rapidly depending on the situation, depending on your health or what you've eaten and things like that. So there needs to be continuity with gut health. So what from what you're eating and if you are going to have a probiotic, you need to keep having that rather than just giving it every now and then when the dog's sick, that's not going to do anything. We are allowed to mention brands. If you if you have favorites that you think you know, that they seem to do something and then you mentioned one that's they're doing a lot of research in. So yeah. Yeah. So one that I like to recommend is Procolin. That's a pretty good one, and I've received pretty good feedback on that. And the other one, which is going through the patency, pretty short. Sure I think it's called. Well, I probably have to clarify. I think it's called Dig Up, or is it? Yeah, Dig Up. It's not as a well-known one, but it was created by a vet and a food technologist. But he's also he does pet nutrition. That's one that I've recently come to find out about, and they've done extensive work and. From what I've been told, it works quite well, but they have done quite extensive research, actual research into it. And their whole research has been into gut health and looking at the different colonies and bacteria in gut and how the probiotics that you use are quite, they need to be quite specific to your gut. So it's just a bit more expansive than what people realize. I listened to a long discussion the other day about the human microbiome with an gastroenterologist who's been in the field for 40, 50 years. And it was the same sort of statement saying, yeah, there's definitely something to it. There's definite science there, but we don't quite know enough to be able to give you solid recommendations. He says, we will get there. We're working on it. And it's exactly, it's astounding fact. I mean, the, the vast majority of bacteria that live in our guts, they don't even know what they are because they don't grow. They can't culture them. That just blew my mind. It's, it's like outer space. We don't know what's happening in our own colons. Yes. <laughs> and if you look, if people want to really understand, there's an extensive amount of work being done in poultry gut health. Like it's huge. Money is just being thrown at it because how we perform or how animals perform, it does have a lot to do with their gut and how they're utilizing those nutrients. So if they're not having good gut health, they're not going to be utilizing nutrients very well and then their conversion ratios won't be as good. So there's a lot of research being done into gut health of chickens, particularly broilers. But it's an interesting one with chickens. Uh, the reason I got this interest because I did my PhD in poultry and with broilers, they have such short lives. And it's interesting to me that they're doing these studies in an animal that has such a short life. So it's a bit harder to kind of track that, I think. But anyway, they're doing an extensive amount of work and I think they're a really good model maybe for the pet industry to look at well, what, what are they doing in the poultry industry because poultry is a great model for many. Yeah, because you can imagine if they can tweak a little thing that can give them 2% better growth or something, yeah. they'll, they'll pour the money into it. So follow the money to see what, what comes out of that. So, And has there been anything from that? Like have they made any major leaps in chickens where they can go yeah this this helps i haven't followed it too much but i know there's just 
a lot on it. Like there's constantly things on it. So, and it's probably the most trending research area for poultry health. More than nutrition itself, even perhaps even more than genetics. One more thing that I have specifically, um, you mentioned vegan vegetarian diets and pets. Am I right in saying no for a cat? Can't maintain a healthy cat. Look, a cat can survive. It will definitely not thrive on a vegetarian vegan diet. And there's this whole thing of, well, they go, oh, we, you know, you can get proteins from plants, but protein is not equal in different ingredients. And at the same time, you'll have people that are so anti using soy. And it's like, well, what do you want to use then? If you don't want to use soy, what's your really next best protein source? So I think they're just wanting too much, but not compromising. But look, a cat technically on a commercial, say vegan food or vegetarian food, they can survive. But as I said, they certainly will not thrive on that diet. And dogs, do they do okay on it? Yeah, they'll do okay on it, but survive, not thrive. And also it's not as palatable. It's just not enjoyable. And I, I mean, to put it quite bluntly, if you're wanting to put your dog on that kind of food, and I know I'll get a lot of hate for this, but I think you've really chosen the wrong pet. You really should have gone for a, a rabbit or a, yeah, just a, <laughs> a plant-eating animal because I don't think it's fair to project your values like that to that extent on your pet. I just don't think that that's fair. I like that. That's a, you say it's a bold statement, but it makes sense to say, well, maybe, maybe it's not for you. If your dog could choose, he would definitely choose meat. <laughs> yeah, I just don't think it's fair long-term. Dogs, dogs also like us and cats as well. They want to enjoy their food. You want to make it a good experience. And the palatability of the food, the texture of the food, that makes a real big difference to their experience and how they approach food. And they can't add a lot of those kind of flavors that we can add to our foods to make it as palatable. So a vegan, you know, a vegan can do a lot with their food. A human vegan can do a lot with their food to make it a really enjoyable eating experience. But a dog is very much limited. Cat is limited. So I don't think that that's fair. So I think it's good to find another animal that you can bond with that will enjoy those plants just as much as you. Yeah. <laughs> I like it a lot. <laughs> Um, is there anything we're missing out on? Because you get these questions all the time. Is it, are you talking about anything different to this when, when you're going to the Vet Expo? Or? I think that with, with the Vet Expo, it's a lot of this. It's a lot of, and it's going back to the question of, you know, you're a vet, you get clients coming in and they say, well, this is what I'm feeding them. And it's trying to get vets to think understand the owner's point of view and really get them thinking about what is out there on the market. If they have a good understanding, they're able to maybe understand their owners, the pet owners a little bit more, and it might help them better guide the pet owners about, you know, dietary choices that they want to make for their pet. Because I just don't want vets to be closed-minded. I think it's just good for them to be aware of what's happening and try to be as balanced as possible because what will happen is they'll tell you what they're feeding their pets. There'll be that judgment. That pet owner might not come back to you again and you don't want that. 
and they're just going to go around hopping to different clinics until they find someone that will validate what they're thinking. And that's not a good thing, I don't think. That's not good for the animal as far as continuity of care. They're just going to get so many different opinions and then the owner gets really confused and then they get all angry and they go, right, I have to deal with this because no one can give me a straight answer. No one seems to know what they're talking about. So I think if vets have a better understanding of what's out there on the market, educate themselves, they'll have more productive conversations with pet owners because you will lose pet owners and they'll just try and do it themselves to the detriment of their pet. Yeah. Gee, well, that's really cool. Thank you. That's a great discussion. I, I do like the discussion about trying to understand. There's more the psychology around it than the actual, just a list of facts to throw at your clients. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Before you run away, just a reminder about our live event on 22 to 25 November in Noosa. We finalized the clinical program for the two clinical days with Prof. Jill Madison and Prof. David Church. And it's a little bit epic. We're talking to Prof. Jill about better clinical reasoning and we're doing clinical conundrums, which are case studies that we'll use to build onto the content that she teaches. And Prof. David, of course, is covering everything endocrinology, from the highs and the lows of cortisol to better ways of thinking about and managing your tricky diabetics. But it's not just lectures. We're doing questions and cases and discussions and, of course, podcasting. Come just for the two clinical days or come for the full four-day event and all of the associated adventures in the best location in Australia. The link for the event is in the show description. And remember to use VVLISTENER, that's all caps, at checkout for $300 off your ticket price. See you there.